You're listening to The Healthy Sensitive. Welcome everybody to The Healthy Sensitive, podcast for highly sensitive people, introverts, creative renegades, just general weirdos who are trying to figure out how to live a life that looks like them and still stay a part of, you know, the general rest of the world. Yeah. I'm Leah Burkhart, your hostess on the show, and uh, today is the last day of May, which is a little sad. This is, um, May is one of my favorite months. Uh, Well, maybe I should say second favorite. My absolute favorite season is fall. And spring is an oh so very close second. Um, I almost wonder if maybe my and love of May is narcissistic. It is my birthday month, but also, it's oh, is it just wellness awareness? No, mental health awareness month. Which for someone like myself who's had a fair amount of experience with mental unease. I don't know if I go so far as to say that I was mentally ill at any point. Although I'm sure if you asked other people who have to, who had to deal with me during certain periods, maybe they'd say so. <laughs> anyway, um, I've had some experience with, and I think I've mentioned before, anxiety, um, insomnia, depression, and you know what was always really weird about the challenges that I went through at any given point that I was going through them was. You know, like it, the intensity of it was really high. Uh, at one point, there at several points, I even thought it might be possible that I could be bipolar, just because again, when I felt joyful, I felt jubilant, and when I felt sad, it was a very special brand of sadness. You know, melancholy, uh, a heaviness to it. But the thing is, it wasn't like you know, like with with bipolar disorder. Uh, one of the telling markers, so far as I understand it, and again, I'm not a mental health professional. I have a master's in holistic health education, but not a psychologist. Um, but my understanding, so far as I've become aware, is you know, one the challenge with having bipolar disorder is that the swings don't necessarily correlate with life events. They often can, but not necessarily. So things might be going perfectly well, and for whatever reason... Uh, a downswing might occur. Um, things might be uh, absurdly horrific and maybe an upswing could occur. So certainly a negative outcome and sort of external circumstance can trigger a downward spiral, just as something that happened that was good could trigger an upward swing. It's just that's not necessarily correlated all the time. But in my case, they were. When things were happening that were hard, my emotions would swing down. And when things that were happening were really good, my emotions would swing up. It wasn't that common for my system to be completely out of alignment with its environment. So that led me to think, well, maybe that's not exactly it, but maybe I'm just slightly ill. <laughs> um, and that's what ultimately led me to go down the rabbit hole of figuring out, okay, well, what is this nervous system thing that I'm operating? What kind of, basically, what kind of car am I driving? What kind of space spacesuit am I operating in? And that research and that sort of exploration is what led me to discover the trait sensory processing sensitivity. And it was just total game changer for me. It was like, oh, oh, I get it. So uh, the, the best analogy I can give for this is, you know, highly sensitive nervous systems kind of behave like a Ferrari. Don't worry, I'm not trying to say that I'm an expensive car, but every type of car you might get into has different perks. If you get into a four-wheel drive, you know, monster truck, and it's going to have some very different perks than a Ferrari would. So my nervous system was such that I I seemed to adapt really well. Uh, Even if I went through troubling times, I seemed to recover pretty well, so long as I did what I needed to do to recover. And the swings of it were just, what was hard is that once I got into a downswing, so so like the the pattern seemed to go like this, something hard might occur. Maybe something sad would happen in my life, or maybe it was just one bad of bad, one night of bad sleep. If I went through that one night of bad sleep, 
it would be even harder for me to get sleep the following night. And then that would trigger this really nasty cycle. Well, if you can't get sleep, go ahead and try and be a sane person. It's really hard. I was able to kind of, you know, fake it till you make it because I did so many different kinds of practices, but it was rough, man. I, I didn't love it. So once I figured out, uh, you know, like between the education I went through, which I mean, most of you all probably know that a lot of research is on some level autobiographical because <laughs> most people I know when they go into research, they're, they're looking at stuff they themselves are interested in for some selfish reason. This was my selfish reason. I wanted to figure out how to drive this car. And once I figured out, first of all, if you don't get good sleep, you would think that the way your body would respond would be to just knock your body out the following night. Sort of like, oh man, I'm gonna sleep so good tomorrow. But that's not actually how it works. If you don't sleep really well on Monday, then when you wake up on the morning, well, if you wake up, let's say you were awake you know, 99% of the night on Monday night, and then Tuesday, the birds start chirping. And if any of you people out there have ever had to navigate insomnia, you know the special brand of torture that is a chipper chirping bird. <laughs> going like, oh, I hate you. It's the sign of morning to come. A morning that you're greeting without ever having had a night to, to surrender to. And so I would get through, trudge through that day And rather than be more fatigued and more sort of withdrawn and subdued, it just seemed like things aggravated me more. And the reason behind this is if you don't get good sleep, you got to remember the body's not operating from a place of how you think it should work. It's operating from the space of survival. Most of the time, if a human being wasn't sleeping well, it was probably because there was some predator in the environment or something that was logistically a nightmare and so the body puts up all of these mechanisms to overcompensate and so even if I don't get a good night's sleep on Monday night come Tuesday morning my cortisol levels are even higher cortisol is associated with stress it's what pumps out all of the sugar from the cells and into the bloodstream in an effort to pump you full of energy to conquer the day so when you wake up in that state that means you're gonna be even more sensitive to stress which means getting to sleep that night will be even harder. That's true for any human being. Uh, There's some people who might feel the impact of that a little less, but that's just kind of the way that, that's the nature of the beast. And so when I discovered sensory processing sensitivity, it's not like my body was doing something wildly different. It's just, it was doing it squared. So it's like, oh, oh, I get it. So when you have a nervous system that's more vigilant, if said person is looking at a sunset, the level of joy that kind of trait would facilitate is intense and lovely. It's just that on the flip side, if someone in your family has died, if someone is in pain, if you haven't gotten a good night's sleep, the level of of frustration and agitation, it's the your body's doing the same thing as the other 80% of the people on this planet are doing. It's just my processing of it, our processing of it, is unique in that it feels to us like it's more pronounced. So that is what led me into being so interested in mental health and generalized health and wellness. So getting back to the original point of the podcast episode, uh, this is Mental Health Awareness Month, and this is the last day of it. So I've, I know I've done a few episodes on mental health. I've uh, I put together a several courses. So if you go to www.thehealthysensitive.com and if you are a nerd like me and love things like courses, you can go into uh, you can either go into community. So that's one of the tabs. And if you become a member, you get access to all of the courses. But if you just want to do a la carte, then you just go to courses and click on the one that's of interest to you. One of those courses is the uh, mental health on boot camp. <laughs> and I thought, you know, to kind of cap the month, I would go over just a very light and fluffy um, summary of what's in some of those courses. So it's not going to be a deep dive. Don't worry, folks. I won't, I won't do that to you. But these are some things that I've amassed over time and have discovered to be really helpful when trying to cultivate mental health 
and not just baseline mental health, but real ability to thrive, real ability to feel like your optimal self. And these are all evidence-based strategies. And so there's plenty of others that I use, but because there's no evidence in clinical trials or anything to, to speak to it, I'm not bringing that into the fold right here. So um, there you have it. So if you want to have whole hearty well-being, what are some of the things that are important to sort of either practice or have in your back belt, back belt, back pocket, sigh. The first thing I'm going to point to is what's called the IMB model. So information, motivation, and behavioral skills. So that's just a model I'm going to use. And there's plenty of research to back that up. You want to look it up, you just send me an email. (laughs) I will tell you way more about it than you'd ever wish to know. But basically the model reads like this. If you want to make any kind of change in your life, the first thing you need is the information required to make the change. So a really simplistic version of that would be, I want to lose weight. Well, what do you need to know in order to lose weight? Really, you need to know how to do that. And ultimately, it's very simple. Eat less, move more. Now, obviously, it does get more complicated. You want to eat less crap and eat more vegetables. You want to you know, honor your body's rhythms. You want to, there's any number of things that it can get more murky and complicated, but at the end of the day, what multiple studies, and this is coming from a holistic health coach. So I did not want to discover this in my research, but over and over and over again, what the research shows is what all of the different people who have all done all the variety of different things in order to lose weight have in common is that they ate less in some capacity and they moved their bodies more in some capacity. So that's, that would be the information. So in my case, if I'm trying to develop a sense of mental health and well-being, well, what information do I need to know? Well, for better or for worse, I'm about to give you all of that. So, um, and then the next piece is motivation. So that's understanding your why. So as an example, if I want to lose weight, let's say that I'm working with a client who tells me, oh, I really want to lose weight. That's a, I bring that up because it's so common. The first thing I want to know is, great, why? And naturally people start, well, I want to feel at home in my own skin. And, and I want to da, 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 da. And of course, when people say that, I'm thinking you can feel at home in your own skin at any size. I mean, with some rare exceptions, but sort of like, mm, you're going to have to do a little better than that. And by better, I mean more specific. And so another question to consider is, you know, what is it that achieving this thing will get you that you don't already have access to right now. So in the case of weight loss, you know, maybe someone will tell me, I used to love hiking, but now when I do it, my knees hurt and I'm told I may need surgery and I really don't want to do surgery. I, I know I need to, you know, everyone and their mother keeps telling me that I, you know, I also have diabetes and, and I keep hearing that if I lost a little weight, maybe some of these things would get better, but it's rough, man. I, it, it hurts. It hurts to move. Okay. That's a pretty good why. Because you're, what you're pointing to is not just, not just, hey, people told me I should, so now here I am. It's more, I loved doing this thing, and now I can't anymore, and I want to get back there. There's a hunger. There's something you're moving toward. So in the case of mental health, if you're trying to cultivate a sense of joy, a sense of contentment, I think contentment is the better word. Contentment is something that I personally value a lot more than just happiness and and goofy, happy, high. What, why is moving toward that so important? Well, for me, when I'm content, when my mental health is in check, my ability to navigate my relationships and to support the people I care the most about is tenfold better. And when I'm not doing that, I'm not, not only am I not a support person for the people in my tribe, I'm a hindrance. Now I'm a weight. I'm, I'm a burden, or at least that's how it feels. So for me, when I'm trying to be, when I'm dedicating myself to my mental health, it's because I want to be a good coach. It's because I want to be a good educator. It's because I want to be a good friend. It's because I want to be a good family member. I want to be a good human. I, I want to be able to navigate the world and put as light a footprint on it as I possibly can. And when I'm content, I'm not in anyone else's way. 
Okay, great. So there's the why. And then we get to the how. The how is behavioral skills. Now, the skills that I'm going to talk about, uh, these are skills that I, I use. Let's back up here. Sherry Pruitt wrote a book uh, with someone whose name is escaping me. I didn't work directly with her co-author. I worked with Sherry Pruitt directly. So sorry, co-author person. (laughs) Uh, But she wrote a book called Smart Skills. Please, you know, I know I've mentioned this before. I know it's obnoxious because there's also smart goals. And that's not the same thing as a smart skill. So isn't that fun? And I spin off of that a little bit and I, I adjust it for highly sensitive people because there are some things that I, I think need to be added on. But smart skills in terms of the, the behavioral skills of, for how to make a change include setting specific goals, including smart goals. So, hey, more smart stuff. Having a means of monitoring your progress. So are you tracking in some measure your you know, if you're trying to lose weight, are you tracking pounds? Are you tracking time? Are you tracking uh, steps? What are you tracking? What do you, cause what you measure moves. Then it's arrange your environment. Cause if your environment is filled with cookies and ho-hos, theoretically you could turn them down and continue to eat less within quotations. But why, why would you do that to yourself? Why not just not buy them? Hashtag just saying. R is recruit support. We are social animals, even introverts like me, and we do better when we have a support partner or a change uh, change partner. So supporters, just to give you an idea of these, the differences here, supporters are people who are on the sidelines. They're like, yeah, you're so awesome. I have no desire to do what you're doing, but good for you. <laughs> and those are helpful people. They're not gonna get in your way. Um, speaking of people getting in the way, uh, my kitty cat, if you're hearing noises in the background, has decided to, she wants to scratch. Fun. Anyway, after supporters, there are change partners. Those are the people who are walking the path with you. So if you're trying to lose weight, it's your, co- it's your co-worker who eats the salad with you and goes on walks with you. If you're trying to improve your mental health, it's the person who does a meditation practice along with you. If not at the same time, then maybe you track it together, something like that. Uh, At my office, as an example, one of my colleagues put together a 30-day challenge and she said, hey, it's really simple. You just pick a few things that you want to try and work on and then check it off every time that you do it for the next 30 days. And everybody in the office decided to, you know, jump on that gravy train. And it's way more fun when there's a bunch of you. We're not all doing the same things, but it's a conversation starter and um, it pulls people together. Again, we're humans and we are, in fact, social creatures. And then the final one is treat yourself. Um, Not necessarily with a treat as in food or even treat as in money, but just what is a reward you can gift yourself with every time you engage in a good behavior. So those are smart skills as authored by Sherry Pruitt. Now I've done a little bit of a spin on this uh, for highly sensitive people and I've added a couple of things. So I use the acronym STRONGER, S, having a spiritual practice. if you want the evidence and the research on this, there is a plenty. And spiritual practice does not have to mean a religion, just to be clear. Uh, it can, it doesn't exclude religion, but spiritual practice is anything that links you with something outside of and is larger than yourself and something that you find, you, you believe you are a part of. So having a spiritual practice gives you the it's almost like a, an opportunity to appeal to a higher authority, an opportunity to let go of the sense that you are the center of the universe and, and you can surrender. The next is T, track your progress. So that's the same, right? Monitoring, tracking. It's important to monitor because data is useful. And tracking, by the way, doesn't have to necessarily just be steps and breaths and minutes and so on. It can be whatever you want it to be. It's just if you're trying to to make a move that's you know moving toward a change, you want to be tracking what how it, to what degree it's working. R is relationships. Do you have healthy relationships? Uh, this is a real especially tricky one for highly sensitive people because when highly sensitive people are in relationships that are toxic or um, don't serve them well, they tend to, their batteries get drained more than the average person. Uh, 
HSPs are very prone to people pleasing. And I don't mean that in a good way, as in, oh, we're so policing all the time. It's obnoxious. Like we say things that people want to hear because we know that that way we'll avoid a conflict. It's a nasty habit. Anyway, so healthy relationships help all the more for highly sensitive people. Unhealthy relationships hinder all the more. O is having an outlet, ideally a creative outlet. And that creative outlet can be anything from, you know, podcasting, (laughs) um, writing. I love to write. Uh, You can follow my blog, although I'm a little all over the place, but I'm not doing it because I'm necessarily trying to make other people follow me and like it. I love to write. And so my hope is that if I put my stuff out there, um, other people will see it and go, well, crap. I mean, she doesn't even write that well. (laughs) If she can do it. (laughs) So N is nourishment. Uh, That includes both food as well as nourishing experiences. So um, highly sensitive people fare especially poorly when they don't nourish their bodies. Uh, We don't do well hungry. You have to remember, it's just a more vigilant nervous system. It's not that anyone on the planet feels great when they're hungry. It's that an HSP will feel all the more lousy. And likewise, if they eat too much, they'll feel all the more bloated and miserable. Not because their bodies are doing something different, but because we process it differently. We, uh, well, digest it longer, differently, in a mental way. G is get support. So, um, oh, sorry, no, sorry. Woo, just kidding. Um, G is growth exercise. So having some kind of a means of moving yourself out of your... I hate saying move yourself out of your comfort zone because there's not necessarily anything wrong with a comfort zone. But highly sensitive people can have a tendency to do the... um, Is victimization the right word? Sissy lalas. That's... So... If you're trying to improve upon yourself, there's really two things you want to work on. One, you want to really hone in your strengths. And we HSPs got a lot of them. But you also want to work on your weaknesses. And we've got a lot of those too. And so having a growth exercise, something that is challenging, but like the right kind of stretch. So if you're terrified of public speaking, maybe you go to Toastmasters. And maybe you don't necessarily even jump right into the fold right away. Maybe you just watch it first. Maybe you take your time with it. But your willingness to just do something that gently pushes the boundaries of your capacity will you'll profit all the more from as an HSP. Um, e is exercise. Exercise is non-negotiable for HSPs. You gotta move. And I don't care how. And if you're in a wheelchair, then that's fine. You can move. If you are a runner, that's great. Get on your feet. If you're a Zumba instructor, fabulous. If you're a yogi, I don't care. If you just want to walk, that's fine. Wall push-ups, underwater basket weaving, do not give a flup. Just move. Because highly sensitive people, well, their, their nervous systems are producing more cortisol than the average person just by virtue of existing. We respond to our environment with a lot more vigilance. That's going to naturally like correlate with more stress hormones. That's not a problem if you're in movement. You use it, right? The adrenaline that's going coursing through the system and making your heart rate go up. Well, if you're walking, you're burning it off. Cool. Uh, The cortisol pumping and giving you that energy. Well, if you're walking, cool. Not a problem. So movement is essential. And then R is rest. That's my Achilles heel. Uh, Rest is absolutely imperative. So you know, I, I've mentioned this algorithm many times before, but it's eight to 10 hours in bed, two hours of digestion, processing, moving around, being in nature, whatever, every day, if you can. So uh, those are, that's the how. If you can believe it, that was all one bullet point, by the way. And we're, what, 20 minutes into this? <laughs> Aren't you glad you decided? I promise the rest will go much more quickly. Okay. So if you're trying to cultivate mental health and well-being, you want to move away from looking out there, waiting for your environment to be such that you can now be happy. The I'll be happy when trap is a nasty trap to get into. You don't want to go there because it's false. I'll be happy once I get my house. False. Side note, 
I think as an update for my house that I'm purchasing, I do the walkthrough tonight. So, hey, 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 <laughs> I might have a house or I might have a year's worth of savings in my bank account. One of those two things is happening today. <laughs> so <laughs> anyway, but when people have asked me about the house, they've said, hey, are you excited? And it's like, no, not really. I'm not unhappy. I'm content. I, I, I will be happy once it happens, question mark. Like it was a business decision for me because I've had to do a lot of work on letting go of outcomes. And in my life, for better or for worse, there was a lot of topsy-turvy change. Uh, my, my mom was a bit of a um, gypsy. You know, we, there was a lot of movement. There was a lot of going, you know, up, down, over, out style. So I learned to get very comfortable with change. Or even if not comfortable, I learned to expect it. Like, oh, okay, this is the nature of the beast. So when a pandemic hits, it's uncomfortable, but it's sort of like, eh, we were due for something, right? I mean, it was, it was on its way. Something was going to happen because something always happens. That's the world being a world. So if I, however, am trying to look out there for my joy and contentment, I'm doing it wrong. Uh, a useful analogy for this, I find, is looking at dervishes, dancing dervishes. If I don't know if you've ever done this, uh, maybe, but have you ever just spun around, you know, got like you've put your hands out or your arms out and you spin like a little helicopter around and around and around and you notice that you start to get dizzy. If you're looking out there, like you're looking at the environment around you as you spin, you get dizzy way faster. And when you stop, the spins continue far longer. If, however, when you stretch your arms out, you look down toward your shoulder or maybe your elbow or even your fingertips, you might notice because they seem to be standing still. The world outside of you is still spinning around and going, but your focus point is closer to home you'll get less dizzy, if dizzy at all. And once you slow down, so long as you keep your focus on your hand or your arm or your shoulder, the spins last maybe a few seconds, if at all. That analogy works because that's life too. Healing is about moving away from, my roommate is the problem. Uh, my house is the answer. This relationship, if only I get this guy. Oh, God, if there is one thing that can hijack me like it's nobody's business, it is an infatuation. Oh, I love infatuation. It is my favorite drug. You can keep your heroin. Thank you very much. Give me a man that I can get Twitter-pated around. Oof. Oof. Talk about getting dizzy. But if I look to a man... And I'm not saying that it's bad to want a relationship, to be clear. I'm, I'm a big fan of loving. It's just, if I rely on that in order to wait on that for my joy, well, first of all, I don't know if you know how attraction works, but I have yet to meet a man who gets excited and turned on by a woman, or another man even, who is desperate for love. Desperation is not an attractive feature. So the more desperate one becomes for that kind of connection, the less attractive they become and therefore they attract more wanting, not a mate. So whether it's a house or money or a job or a mate or achievement, oh God, that's another one that I can get so addicted to. Those are the two big ones for me. Falling in love, oh, oof, and achieving. Oh, I do love me some to-do lists. Oh baby, that's where it's at. There's nothing wrong with those two things. The problem comes when I rely on them for my joy. So always bringing it back inward. That's important. All right, so now moving on. Other pieces that are helpful, evidence-based. One is, the next one that I have here is questioning your story. We have a tendency, all of us, not just HSPs or non-HSPs, we're just talking flat out. Human beings have a tendency to create stories, and that's how we're wired. We're supposed to do that. Our brains do that to kind of give us a sense of context so that we're, while we're navigating the world. But when we get hooked on our story, that's a problem. So if I get attached to, like, I am Leah. I am Leah the health coach. 
I am Leah, the health coach who's in love with so-and-so. I am Leah, the health coach who's in love with so-and-so and, 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 and. If I get attached to all of those identities, I start trapping myself. Um, It's almost like I'm wearing so many layers that I become less capable of moving. I'm now just kind of this blubber of (laughs) like this clumsy hodgepodge of layers. And so I'm not graceful. I can't be nimble. Whereas when I question my story, if I, if I have an assumption that I am my job or I am my relationship and I start to poke at it, well, now there's freedom to move around in it. You know, if I assume that my story is correct, well, that there's not a lot of room for movement, but questioning the story and challenging it and changing it can be extremely powerful. An example of this in terms of an evidence-based technique, you know, journal about something that was really traumatic for you. I would recommend doing this with a healthcare professor, a mental health professional, but, or at least having the support of one or coach or someone. But if you have some kind of trauma or if you're feeling distraught about something, journal about it. And then once you're done, you know, really relive it to the best of your ability. Just bring it all out, get it out there, and then reframe it so that you are not the victim of the story, but you are the hero of it. How is this, you know, how have negative experiences in your past shaped you into a stronger person today? How might going through this current trauma that you might be experiencing shape you into a better person tomorrow? So questioning your story. Uh, The next one is flow. I never remember this gentleman's name. He's Russian, he's intelligent, and please Google the book flow. And you will find him. It's like Mikhail Chikovsky. <laughs> Sorry, I don't know how to say it. Anyway, um, so flow, getting into an experience where you lose track of time. Uh, the best way to have an experience of flow, by the way, is to practice something. So uh, you can get it as a runner. You can get it as a writer. Uh, if you're, if you recognize Malcolm Gladwell's work, he wrote a book called Outliers. He speaks of people who have become masters of their craft. And I think he determined it was about 10,000 hours worth of practice. That's about the, the place where you start experiencing a lot of flow in whatever activity that you do. Next one is movement. I talked about exercise and how important it is. Um, it, if one does movement for 20 minutes a day, three weeks in a row, it has been shown to be as effective, if not more so, than most antidepressants. Now the caveat here is there are plenty of times when an antidepressant really is the answer. So I'm, this is not poo-pooing on antidepressants, nor is it poo-pooing on Western medicine as a, on the whole. But antidepressants are no joke. You don't want to mess around with them unless you need them. So my recommendation is use the things with a lower threshold of side effects first, and then two things will happen. Either, number one, you will see an improvement and won't need to take antidepressants. And or, number two, if you still decide to take them because it's not giving you the boost you need, by the time you get to take antidepressants, the added addition of exercise will make it more effective. You're priming yourself such that when you sort of incorporate other modalities and potential tools, it will take more efficiently, more effectively. The next one, as I've mentioned, or let's see, like I talked a little bit about some of these in the stronger acronym. So movement, nutrition, rest, ah, sleep, sleep, sleep is so important. Um, Highly sensitive people are no different than others as it pertains to sleep, except that when highly sensitive people don't get sleep, they're even more obnoxious because we feel the pain of sleeplessness all the more. Again, don't think of this like highly sensitive people cannot tolerate it or their bodies are doing things differently it's we're processing it differently so sleeplessness sucks for all people it just sucks with a little more intensity for an hsp Um, curiosity is another big one so when you're trying to cultivate mental health a big one to bring into the fold is curiosity Uh, todd kashtan writes at length about it and you know he, he writes in fact that many people have been focusing of late on happiness. And he said, you know, one of the precursors to happiness, and in many ways, a far lower hanging fruit is curiosity. Because happiness is a tall order. You can't just, you know, Google happiness and have it come to your doorstep. You know, there's no DoorDash for happiness. That's not how it works. Happiness is an outcome. 
it's a state. But instead of reaching all the time for what are you passionate about or what makes you happy, what about just what are you curious about? I was even working with a client around you know challenges that come with um, depression, anxiety, and sleeplessness. And she said, man, when I'm in and when I'm struggling like this, I, I don't even... I don't know, man. It's really hard to navigate. I said, yeah, I get it. I'm just, what are some things though? Like as we start talking more, what are some things that pique your curiosity? And she goes, oh my God, are you kidding? I'm curious about everything. I'm curious about the most random of things. And she gets this bullet point list of all these things that just in, within an hour she might get curious about. She said, thank God I'm in today's era where I can just Google this shit. I was like, that's awesome. And even that, just in talking about the things that she was curious about, in real time, I watched her light up. Well, I didn't watch her. We were talking on the phone. I'm a telephonic coach, so I wasn't watching it. But the change in her voice was apparent. And I tried, you know, I, right in that moment, I said, did you notice what just happened? She said, yeah, I just got some energy. So curiosity is extremely energizing. Curiosity is appealing. It's uh, engaging. Curious people are more attractive. I mean, come on, curiosity is sexy. How nice is it when you're sitting across from someone and they ask you questions about you? Oh, come on, that's hot. Just saying. The next one is novelty. So I don't know if you've ever watched the documentary Happy. Was it Happy or was it Happiness? I think it was just Happy. It used to be on Netflix. You could stream it through. I don't know if it's still something you can stream for free, but check it out. One of the things they talked about in the documentary was uh, like whatever it is that brings you joy, you want to also incorporate novelty. So if you love to run, which is definitely something I do, even just changing the route that you use to go running can inspire and foster sort of the, the, it can light up the brain in such a way as to facilitate happiness. We people love novelty. This is all the more true, by the way if you're a highly sensitive person who's also a sensation seeker, which I'm pretty sure I am. At least I tested so in the, I think it's evidence, what do they call it? There's a technical term for it, but it's an evidence-based questionnaire. Clinically proven? Ah, crap, hate when that happens. Anyway though, so having sensory processing sensitivity more or less just means you're sensitive to punishment. You're very sensitive to danger and risk. They tend to be risk averse. Having sensory seeking properties in your brain means that you're sensitive to rewards. So this is that, and I know I've mentioned this before, but like one foot on the gas, one foot on the brake scenario. It's like, oh, I want to do something different. Ooh, but that's scary. Ooh, but I want to I go flying and like go to a new country. Cool. Ooh, crap. Now, how am I going to get any sleep? <laughs> like, oh, no, I have to go through the airport and I have to get on a plane to go across the ocean. Ah, oh, that sounds awful. But I really, 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 really want to go. <laughs> so if you're an HSP and a sensation seeker, good luck, my friends. <laughs> have fun with that. Give me a call. We can commiserate. Um, the next one is boredom. Boredom is super helpful for happiness. You might not think so, but many of the researchers out there have determined that if you can give yourself time with nothing to keep yourself occupied, your brain has a tendency to go into sort of that daydreamy state and lots of cool things happen when you're daydreaming. And I don't care whether you're daydreaming about a hot man on a beach somewhere or daydreaming about, I don't know, hiking up Mount Everwood. It doesn't matter. Whatever it is that, you know, excites you. Uh, you could daydream about characters that you're writing about in your book. Doesn't matter. Whatever. That act of being in that place is extremely healing for mental health. It's just, it's almost unfortunate, really, that we don't have a lot of opportunity for that in our current environment. Um, the next one is having healthy boundaries. And boundaries is really about communication. So if you're talking about strategy, it's really your capacity to do the following. Can you articulate what's okay and what's not okay? That's it. That's that, that, done. <laughs> so when someone comes to you and asks you, hey, do you mind doing blah, blah? Um, if you don't want to do it, can you articulate effectively? No, thank you. <laughs> um, when someone comes to you and says, hey, I would love it if you could do blah, blah, and you're fine with it, can you say, yes, no problem. I would be delighted to do that clearly and without a lot of muss and fuss. 
If you can, congratulations, you are a boundary extraordinaire. Um, vulnerability is another one. You wouldn't think that it would be correlated with health and wellness when you think of vulnerability necessarily. Like, you know, vulnerability seems like a weakness. But if you've ever done any research around content that Brene Brown has crafted or, I don't know, any creativity expert, vulnerability is key. The willingness to be the person to say, I love you first. The willingness to go out and be the first person to call or text even though you're afraid of rejection. The willingness to say, I'm really scared, I could use some support. The willingness to be creative and put your creativity out there. I mean, this is a form of vulnerability, what I'm doing right now. Um, there's many of you, if you've even gotten this far into the podcast, that might be rolling your eyes and going, yeah, this is getting old, I don't like it. And I'm doing it anyway. And there might be some of you listening to it going like, this is awesome. This is a perfectly adequate way to spend my time on a Sunday. Great, but either way, I don't have much control over how I'm received. That relinquishing of control, that's vulnerability. So yeah, if you wanna cultivate your inner happy, get comfortable being uncomfortable. The next one is acceptance, as in acceptance from like, and I don't mean acceptance like, ah, fuck it, who cares? I mean acceptance like, okay, this is what is. So as an example, I've spoken with people who will go on and on and on about how horrible capitalism is. Um, I always find it comical because more often than not, they're usually drinking a beverage that's from some other country, which, yeah, that's funny. Um, or my favorite was when I was in a classroom where he talked about the evils of globalization while drinking coconut water. And it's like, listen, pal, <laughs> like, believe you me, that coconut water did not come here locally. <laughs> if you want to talk about how horrible globalization is, maybe don't do it while literally consuming something that comes directly from the thing you're fighting against. Just going to put that out there. So one can fight it. That's fine. Like if you don't like capitalism, I feel neutral about it. It's as evil as the next thing and it's as good as the next thing and it's been useful in that it gets a lot of goods and services to a lot of people. I mean, it works. It, it does a job, but it's not perfect. So let's say that you're one of those I don't really like capitalism people or at least you don't like the the 1% effect where all of the wealth and power is getting amassed in a very small percentage of the people. That I can totally get on board with. Acceptance doesn't mean, oh, well, that is what it is, so tough cookies, get over it. Acceptance is looking at the information, nodding along and saying, okay, I see it. It is. So it's not, oh, woe is me, my relationship is over, and therefore I must just deal with it and accept that I'll always be alone. It's just accept I am alone right now. It's, so it's seeing things as they are. It's honesty. And if you're trying to get engaged with something like acceptance commitment therapy, which, again, I'm, I'm not a mental health professional such that I could speak to it as informed as perhaps I should. But I can tell you that in using the tools that I read about from the books that speak about it, um, it's extremely helpful. So acceptance commitment therapy you know, speaks to honoring what is, um, kind of rolling with resistance. It speaks to um, letting go of the need to control everything. And so I highly recommend looking into more information. I'll be doing another podcast episode more specifically on acceptance commitment therapy. But just to be clear for right now, acceptance is not about giving up. It's about accepting what is so that you can move forward. It's kind of like the concept of the first, you know, the the first step to solving a problem is admitting that there is one. So it's that moment of, oh, I see it. Okay, that's what it is. All right, I see it. It's, you know, getting on the scale first thing in the morning, looking down and seeing the number and saying, okay, that's how much gravity I'm putting on the planet today. It's not, and therefore, why bother? And it's not, woohoo, I'm amazing. It's, there it is. It is. All right, next one, gratitude. 
Everybody and their mother speaks about this one. If you're getting bored of it, tough cookies, just thank your lucky stars and it'll be brief. (laughs) So gratitude, it's very difficult to be stressed and grateful at exactly the same moment. It can certainly flip back and forth very quickly, so it can feel like it's both, but it's when you really look at it, very difficult to be both at the same time. So gratitude, much like when I talked about acceptance, is not about faking it. It's not like, no, I'm really grateful that we're in a pandemic. No, you're not. I mean, if you are, then that's fine. But I mean, for most of us, we're not grateful we're in a pandemic. However, I am very grateful that I have a roof over my head during it. I'm extremely grateful that there's food in my cupboard. I'm very grateful that I'm able to connect with my friends. Like, if you're going to be in a pandemic, doing it in the year 2020 is a pretty sweet deal because it's not like I go into my little burrow and have no access to people. I can pick up my phone and see them on a video. I can talk to people. I can write to people. I can flirt with people. I can do all the things. Granted, it's way better when it's in person but I still have some access. That's worth being grateful for. So gratitude isn't Pollyannifying things. It's accepting things as they are and then looking for what areas of, where are the areas of abundance. And that's basically it. I, there's some other things that I put in the bootcamp course, because again, it's about 30 days worth of content. Um, and I also amassed a bunch of TED Talks that speak to it. Um, I talked about some of the evidence-based strategies. I even speak to things like love languages, you know, what are the, what, the algorithm around resting. Uh, I talk about the fuck it theory. Totally recommend it. It was a book written by, of course, I didn't put it in my note, but I'll put it in my show notes. Uh, it's a book, an actual book, written by a pretty smart guy. Um, and he speaks to... It's sort of Taoism, but using derogatory language so that it's more funny and comical and light. So all kinds of goodies that are in there. Please feel free to take a look. If there's anyone who, I mean, it's I've charged an amount for it. Uh, If there's anyone who wants access and you cannot afford it, just send me an email. Leah at thehealthysensitive.com. And I'll be more than happy to grant you access discounted or for free. I don't want money to be the reason you can't access content, uh, but there you have it. Also, some generalized housekeeping before I totally wrap this thing up. Uh, I'm speaking of courses. That's why my brain is going here. I'm in the middle of doing all kinds of cuckoo for Cocoa Pups things on the back side of this. I'm trying to create an app and I'm trying to piece it together so that it's really simple. Like you just push a button and you get access to a lot of content and you don't have to do a lot of muddling around with click here, go there, click on this tab. Um, and I'm also trying to figure out how to streamline like access to the courses and to the community. And so uh, if you start feeling like I'm, you know, like you might see my website kind of be changing its platforms or you, you might see some kooky stuff happening, um, please bear with me. I, I'm trying to make things better, but as is true with creativity, there is there are growing pains involved. And so, yeah, there's that. I do hope, too, that as we close for the month of May, that you're coming to the end of it like an exhale. Like, ah, you know, another month, I got through just fine. Because um, I think it's kind of lovely that we were right smack dab in the middle of a pandemic when Mental Health Awareness Month came to pass. Kind of poetic, really. And so if you find that you are not in that place, if you want support around cultivating real contentment, not just Disneyland goofy happy, I mean contentment, the capacity to be at home in your own skin and you're feeling like you're struggling and you're feeling like you just want some, like, I don't know, a whiteboard to brainstorm things, you know, the whiteboard in the version of a human, please reach out. Again, my email is leah at thehealthysensitive.com. And then if you just want to go to my website and take a look at resources, uh, if you can't afford whatever is on there that does have a paywall, just let me know. I can lift it. And if you can and you want access to it, that is fabulous as well. So that's my shtick for today. Uh, I hope you have a wonderful Sunday. If it's Sunday that you're listening to this, uh, a wonderful day, whatever day of the week you're listening to this. And I will tune in next week, next week, or, well, yeah, next week and all throughout the month, I'll be talking about men's health, especially highly sensitive men. So that should be fun. 
Um, it, I very seriously doubt there's a lot of men listening to my podcast. Uh, if I, I'm hoping there are some, but men, for better or for worse, are not given a lot of room to use words like sensitive. Even though there are equal numbers of men and women who have this trait, sensory processing sensitivity. Uh, it's not language that men are encouraged in the U.S. of A. to adopt and uh, advertise openly. So if you yourself are a self-identified, highly sensitive man, first of all, you're a badass. Congratulations for being like self-aware and curious enough to do that exploration. And I do hope that the content that I start putting out there around men's health in general and highly sensitive men in particular is useful. Um, if there's anything out there, again, if you're, if you're a man yourself and you happen to have stumbled onto this podcast, if you have any questions you would li like for me to answer, please email me. Uh, I it will absolutely filter into the podcast. Uh, and on the flip side, let's say that you're a woman who knows a highly sensitive man. So you might be married to one, uh, you might be a sibling to one, a parent of one, uh, you might be, you might have a colleague that you're like, God, I think my colleague has these traits and he might not self-identify as being sensitive, but um, I do hope that the information proves useful for you in engaging with your person, whatever relationship you have with them. Because as hard as it is for me to be, uh, have to like navigate a, a spacesuit with vigilant nervous system, all of the research I'm seeing is that it's far more difficult for men, not in some areas, but in Western culture, because they have to contend with two layers. There's the first, which is, I'm a man, and I identify as a man, and yet I don't have all of the traits that are necessarily associated with mas yeah, mm, hardcore masculinity. Uh, that isn't to say that there aren't some. I mean, I'm fairly androgynous. I'm I'm athletic. I'm I can be very assertive. I can you know, so I have masculine traits. However, when I say I'm sensitive as a woman, you know, people kind of pat you on the head and go, "Oh, that's really cute." When a man says it, the eyebrows sort of furrow inward in a strange way of like, mm, "I don't know about you." Uh, it's there are many many more challenges when you're a highly sensitive man tr trying to present in and cultivate community and develop relationships, especially romantic relationships, um, without feeling like you have to put on a lot of armor to do it. So I look forward to diving more deeply into that in the next couple of weeks. I really am going to end at some point, guys, I swear. Um, once again, have a fabulous day. I will be checking in with you next week. Looking forward to chatting. Have a Words are hard today. Bye!